Are you all familiar with the Where's Waldo books? the giant search and find books where you're looking for this tiny little man in his red and white striped sweater somewhere lost in the midst of these really detailed pictures that span across your entire lap. And as a mom, it's a little bit frustrating because they don't quite fit on a normal bookshelf. They often have to get turned sideways. But I spent a lot of time looking at those books when I was little, so much so that I've actually memorized where Waldo is on every page. And my kids think that I'm just really fast at finding him each time. They're very impressed by me. And we also have in our house the super cool 1990s Christian bookstore version of Where's Waldo. It's called In Search of Righteous Radicals, which is such a 90s word. I love that. And you have to find certain biblical heroes um, in pictures that depict what was going on in their time. And everyone has their strategy, right? Some people will hold up the book in front of them with their eyes wide until they find what they're looking for or until their eyes get blurry. Or there's the more methodical approach where you start in one corner and you slowly make your way through all of the little pieces until you find what's missing. Because within each of these giant pictures, there's lots of very small things that are going on. And I couldn't help but think about that with our study of the book of Exodus. We have these big picture moments, right? These huge things that God is doing. We have the Israelites in slavery, and it's almost like you can picture what it would look like on a giant page with Pharaoh's palace in the background and the Israelites working hard. And then maybe there's one with all of the plagues spread across And then the Israelite people leaving Egypt with the Red Sea parted in front of them and Pharaoh's army coming after them behind. And within each of those big pictures, there's all of these small things that are going on, these individual people, these moments that contribute to the whole. And as we approach scripture, and not just children's books, it becomes important to think about how these people, these conversations, these things that are going on on an individual level contribute to the big picture. In Exodus chapter 17 and 18, certainly they continue to tell us about the big picture of what God is doing for his people, how he is protecting them, how he is providing for them. But it also zooms in to give us a glimpse into the specific ways that God used other people in Moses' life to lend support and counsel when he needed it. Like Moses, we are imperfect and weak people who need help sometimes. And in our passage, God provides that help in Moses' life, and thankfully, he is faithful to provide for us as well. If you'll open up in Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8, it says, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. The Israelites are facing another obstacle on their journey into the promised land. But just like their need for food and water, God is going to take care of them. 
And they are victorious in this battle against the Amalekites because of the obedience of Moses and because of the helpful men who stood by his side. Our first point this morning is this. Number one, allow others to help. Allow others to help. What's kind of exciting here in Exodus 17 is we have the first mention of Joshua. Yes, Joshua. Get really excited. He's the next faithful leader of the Israelite people. And Moses brings him in and he explains to him what the plan is now that they have been attacked by the Amalekites. Joshua is going to gather together some fighting men. And while they are engaged in the battle, Moses is going to take Aaron and her with him up the hill to hold up the staff of God. Now, what's interesting is there's actually some debate about how exactly it is that Moses held up the staff. Did he hold it with one hand at a time and alternate? Did he hold it with two hands? Was it straight up? Was it a little bit like a Y situation? And I don't think it really matters, but any of us who have been in PE class in elementary school and we had to do arm circles, we know that anything above here, it's really fast that your arms start to get tired and it starts to hurt. In verse 12, it even says there, Moses' hands grew weary. He had a job to do during that battle, but it was hard, and he needed help. His physical body could only handle so much. And how true is that for us so many times, right? We walk boldly into new challenges, only to find out that after a while, on our own, we have limits. If you're a new mom or if you're someone who has cared for a loved one around the clock, you know that there's only so many sleepless nights before your brain starts to see things that aren't really there. And I think we've all seen these past two years just how susceptible our bodies are to microscopic germs. And not just our physical weakness, right? But being worn down emotionally as well. Those heavy burdens that we carry that aren't visible on the outside. Those days when everything just feels like too much. And looking at Moses in this passage, it's clear that this battle is raging long enough that he couldn't continue without the support of Aaron and her. And I love the picture of problem solving that takes place in these verses. Verse 12, it says, So they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and her held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Reading between the lines, it's almost like you can see the wheels turning in their heads, right? They're watching the battle take place, and they're watching Moses standing there, and they're thinking, okay, every time his staff is up, we start to pull ahead, but every time it goes down, we start to lose. So clearly, the staff needs to stay up as much as possible. What can we do to make that happen? And logically, it makes sense. They get Moses a place to sit, they have him rest, and two grown men stand on either side, and they have their entire bodies to help support his arms. So whether he's holding the staff up with one hand or two doesn't really matter because they are there to hold him steady until the Israelites are victorious. Aaron and her right by Moses' side, giving him the support that he needs. I can think of so many examples in my life, and I really hope that all of you all can testify to the same. Examples of people stepping in, looking at what you have, and saying, okay, you are needed here. So what can I take care of over here so that you can rest and you can recover or you can focus on the important job that God has for you and you don't have to worry about what's going on over here, whether it's childcare or preparing meals or providing rides or even financial support. The gift of others stepping in and giving you a place to sit and rest and they pick up the extra work. 
And Aaron and her certainly supported Moses in a very real and physical way in this situation, but also they were just there. So let's not forget the kind of help that may not look like a to-do list getting done, but those who will stand with you in your trial. They will lend the help and support of a listening ear and a shoulder. And prayer, those who will go to the Lord on your behalf in prayer, both when they're with you and in their own prayer time when they're away from you. We really could have an entire message on the gift of a, of a praying friend. So if you've been the recipient of help in your need, whatever that might be, it's not something to feel guilty about or to feel bad about. That's a good thing. We should be thankful for those who are willing to help us. Because there will be other days where Moses will go alone up a hill. But in this situation, he took Aaron and her with him and willingly accepted their help. They participated in the work with him. We know that there are those times that, like Moses, we need help and we need someone to come alongside and hold our arms up for us. But there are those other times where we think we could just squeak by or we can muscle through it or fake it even, and we claim that we don't need any help. It's really almost as ridiculous as a toddler who is trying to put on their own shoes and yelling at you, I do it myself. And if you've ever been the adult in this situation, you know just how ridiculous it is that they continue to struggle when help is literally standing right in front of them. And part of the growing up process for that child is, of course, to learn how to put on their own shoes, but also they need to learn how to ask for help when they need it. Let's not be stubborn, ladies. Let's allow others to help us. In our partner's handbook in chapter 8, which is the chapter about serving in the church, there's this discussion question. It says, discuss some of the problems that you imagine would result at a church where only a very small percentage of the people were involved in the majority of the ministry work. And I don't think we actually have to imagine too hard or for too long to think about what problems would arise in any context, really, within your home, within your small group, within your workplace, within your group of friends. I think we might quickly find that sometimes the work doesn't get done or doesn't get done well because people have limits. You can only hold up your own arms for so long. And those who are doing all the work, they're going to get worn out and they're going to get burnt out pretty quickly. When you carry the heaviest load, it's very tempting to want to make sure that other people know that you're carrying the heaviest load and to have them affirm all of the hard work that you're doing. And if that's not there, that's when bitterness and feelings of underappreciation begin to form and those lead to the big ones, right? Anger and frustration and discontentment. And sometimes I wonder if some of that frustration can even be avoided if maybe we recognize that others in the group aren't aware of the needs or the help that they can provide because by the time they show up, everything is already done. This is where our motives matter because there's a very fine line between being someone who can do a lot for people with joy and letting that slip into doing everything because we don't want to share the load, we don't want other people to do things their way, or we want all of the credit. But when we don't allow other people to participate in the work, they don't get to appreciate the rewards on the same level. It's really easy for us to think, I got this, I don't need any help, or 
no one wants to help and I'm going to end up doing all the work anyways. Or the hardest one for me, it's just easier if I do it myself. That comes up a lot within my household when the kids want to help in the kitchen. And I know that they are trying to be helpful, but it means more mess, more time, more training, more patience on my part, because I'm just better at it than they are, right? But letting them in means that when the project is done, when the cake is baked or whatever it is, they get to say to dad, I made this. Maybe not totally on their own, but pretty close, right? And if you have young ones around or if you have grandkids, this is a great training ground for them to be helpful, catch them while they think that chores are fun, and involve them in the work. Ladies, when we push people away, let's remember the opportunities for sin that we're creating for ourselves and how we're robbing other people of the opportunity to serve. We are here in the month of December, in the season of all of the hosting, cooking, baking, cleaning, list-making, shopping, wrapping, planning, organizing, coordinating, and all the things. Maybe this year we take the opportunity to share the load, allowing others to share the work and the rewards. And yes, I am saying maybe that means you do less. You simplify and you delegate. I'm also acknowledging that that means that some things are not going to get done the same way that they have always been done before. Maybe you make amazing peppermint bark from scratch, and you bring it to every Christmas Eve family gathering. But maybe this year, you let a cousin, a daughter-in-law, a sister, bring the peppermint bark to the Christmas Eve festivities. And maybe, maybe she brings the one in the plastic box from Costco. I'm sure your peppermint bark is delicious, but I can tell you the one in the plastic box from Costco is also delicious. Let her bring that gift to the party. Let's seize the chance to open our eyes to who God has placed on either side of us and let them hold our arms up for a while. Because what if, what if letting someone else lend a hand this Christmas season, what if it taught you gratitude for the gift of people and humility where you have fought pride in the past. That's sanctification. Praise God, that's growth. Did you ever think that having someone else wash the dishes or bake the cookies for you could make you look more like Christ? A passage that's very familiar to all of us is Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humbly considering other people is setting aside the pride of wanting to prove something. We're looking out only for our own interests when we set out to show that we don't need any help. Our conceit is the promotion of our own success because we want to prove that we're capable that we have it all together, that we can do it all, instead of allowing others to share the work and admit that maybe sometimes we need some help. I mean, just think of the simple difference between Moses coming back down that hill and telling Aaron and her about what happened versus their shared experience of watching God miraculously defeat their enemies as they stood together 
on that hill. Because when we allow other people into the battle and into the work with us, we come out on the other side worshiping God together because we saw together what he accomplished. In our Advent calendar with Compass Women yesterday, the verse that came up was Ecclesiastes 4, verses actually 9 and 10, which says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Certainly, we have to look at the other side of the situation as well, right? Because, yes, Moses is allowing Aaron and her to come with him and to share the work. But also, Aaron and her are there, willing to share the work, willing to help. Maybe your struggle is not in allowing other people to help. Maybe your struggle is in being a helper, looking out only for your own interests and never for the other interests of others at all. If our mindset is that we're not needed or if we have an unwillingness to be used, those around us may start to fall under the weight of their burden and we're going to miss out on the opportunity to let God use us to work in their life as well. Let's write down number two this morning. Be willing to help. Be willing to help. Be Aaron and her willing to jump in and solve a problem and stand steady until the job is done. I'm certain that they could have had excuses. Sometimes we call them reasons, but really at the heart, they are excuses for why they didn't want to help. One of those might have been, I don't want to. And I think probably this one is at the heart of all of the rest. Right? We come up with better words and better rationalizations for things, but really there are times when we just, don't, we just don't want to help. And the answer is as simple as the statement, we really simply just must fight laziness and selfishness. In Philippians 2, when we read do nothing from selfish ambition, that means do no thing. That means nothing that you do should be done seeking only your own agenda at all costs without concern for other people. But the cure, the remedy, is there in the same passage. It says, count others more significant and look to the interests of others. I'm sure we've all heard it said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So when we're tempted to say, I don't want to, we have to just turn the eyeball around from ourselves to other people, and sometimes we just have to do it anyways. Or what if they had said, I don't know what to do? or I don't know if my help is even needed. Well, within our context, I can tell you 100%, somewhere, your help is needed. We hear the announcements on the main stage, we get the emails, we've even had pastors come here to Women's Bible Study and ask for helpers. And not just to, lend, to send you out to do things on your own, they're gonna provide the resources and the training that you need to do the job well. But even if you set that aside, I bet that even if you go to your small group today and listen closely to the prayer requests that are shared by your sisters, somewhere there is a need and somewhere there is something that you can do to help. It can be really easy to think that someone else will do it. I don't need to because someone else can. And they might. They also might not. And even if they do, it's still doesn't solve the problem of our heart attitude that is unwilling to be used. 
Sometimes the reason is it's just too much for me right now, or I have other things that I need to be doing, and that might be valid. We have seasons in life where we physically cannot take on another thing, or we can't meet a need that's around us, and we do also have our own priorities and responsibilities. You may be a great cook, and you could spend all day preparing meals for five different families and deliver them to them. And then come home and all of your resources are spent and so your family is eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That's not the pattern, although every once in a while, maybe. See, God could have given Moses super strength to hold his arms up for as long as he needed to. He could have sent down angels from heaven to stand on either side of him and hold up his arms. He could have defeated the Amalekites in a completely different way that had nothing to do with Moses standing up on a hill. But he didn't. He used these men and their help to Moses to bring about victory. When we have excuses, when we throw up a hard stop to being a help for other people, we miss the opportunity to be obedient and to be a part of God's work in their lives and certainly within our own. So what can you do? You can do something. The reality is someone can't do everything, right? But everything that you can do is something that someone else then does not have to do. I love the way that it's put in Galatians 6, 10, when it says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. As we have opportunity. I live in a two-story house and I do have five kids, so you can imagine there's a lot of times that I find things downstairs that belong upstairs. And I could spend a lot of time going up and down the stairs and putting those things away, but recently I thought I'm gonna work smarter and not harder. So I took a box and put it on the landing of the stairs. And as I find a toy or a pair of socks or something else downstairs that doesn't belong, I put it in the box. And I'm trying, we're still in the training stage, but I am trying to teach my kids that as they have a need upstairs, they're going upstairs to get something or they're going to bed and they pass by the box to just grab one or two things and take them with them and put them away. Not asking them to dig everything out of the couch cushions or to rearrange the linen closet, just as they have opportunities, serve the family, be helpful, put one or two things away and if we all contribute, the idea is that the box will be empty most of the time. If you're going to Target, send out that text message that says, I'm going to Target, do you need toothpaste? If you accidentally make too much chili for dinner one night, call a friend, hey, would you all like chili for dinner tonight? I happen to have extra. If you are driving your teen to the narrow, you can call me and ask if you can pick up my teen on your way to the narrow. <laughs> yes, absolutely, anytime. We can also delegate and enlist the help of others. Aaron had been Moses' teammate in the confrontation of Pharaoh, but in this situation, he brings her along as well, and then Joshua is given the job of leading the fighting men in the battle. And this one can be really fun. In my women's Bible study group a few years ago, we would draw names, and when we would draw your name, if you had a task that needed to be accomplished, several other people from the group would show up and help accomplish that task while others took the children away so that they wouldn't be a distraction in the midst of the work. And honestly, it's just more fun to do a job with friends. We had fellowship, we were encouraging to one another, and stuff 
got done. It is valid that you may have too much going on to help others for a period of time. Or if someone you love is dealing with something and you can't physically be there with them, this is where we can use our words, our calls, our text messages, our cards, and our prayers. Like I mentioned earlier, the support of a praying friend is immeasurable. Ladies, let's be found to be faithful helpers who are living out the call in Philippians 2 and Galatians 6 in very practical ways. If we go back to Exodus 17, starting in verse 14, God tells Moses to record everything that's happened and all of his judgment against the Amalekites for what they've done. And then Moses builds an altar and calls the name of it, the Lord is my banner. It can be tempting to think to ourselves that if we're always helping people, if we're always doing things, then we won't get the credit. No one's going to recognize what we're doing. But the truth is, we're always working to show that God is worthy of the credit. After the battle is won, that's the message from Moses in the title, The Lord is My Banner. Because let's just step back for a minute and remember that although it was used for many signs and wonders, Moses' staff is not a magic wand. The victory in the battle is all about God's power. Because without it, Moses is just a guy standing on a hill holding up a stick. And that stick going up and down having anything to do with the outcome of the battle, that's God. So let's be careful to remember that it's God's provision in the help of other people in our lives. It's also his provision in the opportunities that he gives us to help other people. Because it's through our obedience, our action, that God is working we will fight pride at every turn, the pride of self-reliance, the pride of selfishness. And as we continue in this text, we'll see the battle against the pride that could keep us from hearing wise counsel from other people. Because sometimes help comes in the form of words. In Exodus chapter 18, it starts with Moses' father-in-law Jethro coming to visit. He's also bringing Moses' family back to him because they've been with him for a time. And Jethro has heard from afar all that God has been doing for the Israelite people, but he wants to come and he wants to hear it from Moses. So Moses invites him into his tent and he tells him about everything that has happened. And Jethro worships Yahweh as greater than all the gods. Then if you look at chapter 18, starting in verse 13, it says, the next day Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people have come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another. I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Ouch. I'm sure that Moses felt it, right? He knew the weight of the task that he was carrying and leading the people in this way. But Jethro shows up and just plainly says, this task is too big for you. The process is all wrong. You won't be able to keep up the work. The line is going to get longer and longer, and the problem is just going to compound on itself. Like he says there, the thing is too heavy for you. You're not able to do it alone. God provides for us in many ways, right? Through the help and support of other people. And other times in the form of helpful words, even the ones that are a little bit hard to hear. 
I probably don't need to tell all of you all or make it a special point to say, be like Jethro, be willing to give people advice. We usually are pretty willing to give people advice, right? But we probably all need to remember to point number three, listen to the words that help. Listen to the words that help. Several years and a few children ago, I found I had this little sliver of time while the little ones napped, and I wanted to learn something new. I wanted to take on a new skill and do something practical. And I remembered that a friend of my mom's had made prayer quilts for my babies when they were born. And those of you all who serve in the quilting ministry here, you know what that means, that as you are piecing together a quilt or tying the knots at the end, you're praying for the person that's going to receive that quilt. And I love, I love this. I love that I have a tangible reminder of the many hours of prayer that have been spent on behalf of each of my children specifically. So I thought, I have a friend who's having a baby. I can quilt. It's just cutting and sewing and a little bit of math. And when I was in the seventh grade, I took a half a semester of home economics. So I got this. If you are someone who quilts, just hold on. Don't worry. I learned my lesson. I know exactly what you're thinking. But I picked a picture online of a quilt that I wanted to make. And it was a square quilt made up of hundreds of one-inch squares of various fabrics in a random design. Yes, I know. Starting small. So I, I bought some fabric. I started cutting. I started sewing. But what was supposed to be a perfectly square quilt started to look more like a parallelogram. It took a hard right turn. And I wasn't sure what had gone wrong. I really didn't know what I was doing. So I asked a lady from church who had quilting experience to come over and take a look at it. And she was very sweet. She took several minutes before she decided what to say. <laughs> I could see her biting her lip. I knew it was coming. And she was very kind. But basically, she said, you're, you're doing this wrong. And she asked me if I had a pattern. I said, no, I have a picture on my phone. <laughs> and she said, do you have steps that you're following? And I said, no, I have a picture on my phone. I was taking a piece of fabric, cutting my square, sewing it onto the quilt, one one-inch square at a time. So she kindly explained to me that every single time I measured, every single time I cut, and every single time I sewed a seam, I was creating an opportunity for error. And several hundred, maybe thousand errors later, I was way off course. So I did the only reasonable thing to do in a situation like that. I took my parallelogram, cut a square out of the middle, attached a liner, a back, and I put it in the mail and sent it to my friend. And I said, many tears, many prayers, and not a lot of skill. You're welcome. <laughs> and in some ways, it was super easy for me to listen and take the advice of this sister, right? She brought knowledge and experience to the table. I was grateful for her help. I had asked her for her help. But at the same time, I had worked a lot of hours and I had cried a lot about this particular quilt, only to be told that it was best to throw it out and start all over again. That's tough to hear. It can be hard to receive counsel from other people. My problem with the quilt was obvious. I had a lack of skill. And 
Honestly, it wasn't that personal of an attack. But sometimes people speak into our lives about things that are very personal, that are very hard to hear. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who says something to you, you should immediately listen to them and make a change because there is a difference between wisdom and just opinion. But I think sometimes we miss the help that God provides for us because we have this list of reasons not to listen to somebody. Maybe we don't respect the source. Maybe you have an opinion about somebody's parenting. So when they want to tell you what you should do in parenting, it kind of falls into the category of thanks but no thanks, even if what they're saying is true. Or we don't view them as an expert or qualified to give us advice. This is that gut response of who gave you the right to tell me what to do? Ladies, I think sometimes we're guilty of ranking people in our life. We determine who is more worthy to speak into our life. And this one is tough because in some areas it's necessary, right? You would not ask your mailman the same questions that you ask your doctor and vice versa. But sometimes God will use an unexpected source to teach us truth. You can ask anyone who's serving in Kids Bible Club right now what they have learned about God from four-year-olds. And four-year-olds are experts at nothing. We can be worn down sometimes by the constant opinions of someone. We don't really know much about Moses' relationship with his father-in-law, and it doesn't seem to be the case. But maybe you have someone in your life who has something to say about everything. And it can be hard to hear one more thing from the same source, one more sentence that starts with, well, I would, or well, I wouldn't. Think of the boy who cried wolf, but instead it's all the helpful words get lost in the midst of just all the words. And this one might be more of a reminder to those of us whose words are many to be more selective about what we share and when. I know I'm often guilty of this next one, I don't appreciate the way that the advice was given. This is more of, it's not so much what you said, but how you said it. Well, let's put ourselves in Moses' sandals for a moment because I wonder how we would respond to someone looking at our exhausting and hard work and saying, what you're doing is not good. We might respond with, hey, hey, aren't you supposed to give me two encouraging things that I'm doing right before you give me your constructive criticism? Isn't that the more diplomatic approach? Or what if we simply don't like what someone has to say? The reality is just because I feel like what someone says is wrong, just because I have an emotional reaction to it, or just because I am offended doesn't mean that they're wrong and that I'm right. It's the message that matters. We must consider the encouragement, the exhortation, or the rebuke on its own, apart from this list of things that can cloud our judgment. This is a big challenge to Moses. If you think about it, he's being criticized by his father-in-law, who is a foreigner and brand new to the understanding of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In fact, it's Moses who taught him about who Yahweh is. And let's not forget who Moses is. From all the way back in Exodus 3, we learned that Moses is the man selected and prepared and called by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. He's one of two men to stand before Pharaoh speaking for Yahweh. He demonstrated many signs and wonders. He speaks to God on behalf of the people and he speaks God's words to the people. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's going to write a good chunk of the Old Testament. 
And God himself says of Moses in Numbers 12, 7 and 8, God says, he is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Moses is a big deal, both here and many, many years later, even all the way into the writings that we have from the New Testament. As Stephen, who's about to be martyred, is recounting all that God has done for the Israelite people in Acts 7.22, he says about Moses, he was mighty in his words and deeds. And later in verse 35, he describes Moses as the man God sent as both ruler and redeemer. He's included in the list of the faithful in Hebrews 11, and he is called faithful by the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3. And yet, he is also, as it says in Numbers 12, 3, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. We can understand logically and even a little bit emotionally how it might have been difficult for this Moses to take counsel from Jethro. Moses is working hard. He's exhausting himself. Jethro arrives on the scene and tells him how he thinks that things can be run better. And yet, he is humble enough to hear the helpful words of his father-in-law. Jethro is not just saying, you know what I think? Rather, he has a genuine concern for Moses, for God's people, and for the efficiency of the work that's being done. As the chapter continues in Exodus 18, 19, Jethro explains to Moses how he could set up a system of judges, faithful, God-fearing, truth-loving men to handle small groups of people and smaller matters, leaving the bigger jobs, the bigger things to be escalated to Moses. And then in 18.22, near the end, it says, So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. Doesn't that sound familiar to the beginning of our passage, right? Like Aaron and her, these faithful men will hold Moses up so he can continue to do the job God has for him. And then in verse 23, it says, If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. Jethro even appeals to Moses to trust God's direction in this plan before making the change. He may not have delivered this advice in just the right way or at the right time. He might not be an expert on God's law or God's plan. He's a guest in Moses' tent, and yet his counsel is wise. We don't get a peek into Moses' thoughts on this conversation, but we do know that not only was he humble enough to listen to Jethro's advice, but also to make the necessary changes. In 1824, it says, So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. When we're on the receiving end of counsel, even the kind we did not ask for, it's important to consider the message more than the delivery or the source. Let's listen to the words that help. This means that we have to work hard to separate in our minds the tone or our questions about someone's motives or any of our objections from the words that were said This is a reasonable and not an emotional evaluation. Because when we can evaluate reasonably, it becomes easier to compare the counsel that we've received to God's word. It's taking that extra second before we react with, excuse me, and actually ponder the perspective of the person that's sharing and asking ourselves, is this godly counsel? Do I maybe see the situation incorrectly? 
are they providing a practical improvement to what it is that's going on? Does this really matter? Is this a situation where it would be better to just allow the compromise rather than challenging? And honestly, there's no exact answer for how much time you should spend thinking through the advice that someone has given you, but I can say that if you are someone who has put in some real time digging deep into God's word and growing in your relationship with him through prayer, then we know from James 1.5 that God gives wisdom to those who seek it from him because he's the source. The more your thoughts and desires align with the one who gives wisdom, the faster you're going to be able to get those answers. And if you find that the advice is truthful and helpful, be willing to apply it. We're not yet done with the book of Exodus or all the plans that God has for Moses and his people, but how amazing is it to go from here knowing that God has entrusted his people to a humble leader who's willing to accept help and advice from others and who God has surrounded with helpers. We've zoomed in on Moses and the people right around him in the midst of the big picture of all that God is doing with his people to see the need for help, for helpers, and for helpful words. And I hope that this Christmas season is overflowing with opportunities for all of us to look to our left and to our right of where God has us, to accept the support of our sisters, to hold up another sister in need, and to humbly hear God's truth through the words of other people. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you that in Exodus we have a picture of not just your power and your work and the great and mighty things that you do, but you have also given us a glimpse into the lives of real people dealing with real things that we can understand, that we can feel, that we can relate to. And I pray that we would hold on to what we have learned from Moses and from the examples of Aaron and Hur and Joshua and Jethro that surrounded him and provided the help that he needed. I pray that this Christmas season is different than ones in the past, that we take the truth from your word and that we apply it directly to where we are. In Jesus' name, amen.